It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to, and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. And to those who disagree, who will focus on what I have stopped, I ask you to consider what we have just created with Network North, an alternative which in place of one delayed and overrunning project will now begin hundreds upon hundreds of new projects. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Thursday the 5th of October. I'm Callum McDonald. Thank you very much for finding us. It will not have escaped your attention that we are now in the middle of party conference season. You got a bit of a preview last week and so on. Today's episode we're rounding up exactly what happened at Conservative Party Conference and looking ahead to Labour Party Conference which kicks off in oh just a couple of days time. Uh, of course to do that with us we're joined by Kirsty Buchanan who was Special Advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you. Hello. Have you enjoyed and where watching? Are you, and where do you where do you speak to us from at the moment, Callum? Just well, the avoidance of any doubt about the, where you spent your conference season. Is that well, sun streaming through a window? <laughs> so yes. Should well, I say good morning or should I say Calamera? 
<laughs> so yes, welcome to the Greek island of Kos, uh, where at about, well, about this time yesterday, just about, I was cruising around on a boat um, and trying to find a great place for us to uh, drop anchor, that's what the sailors say, drop anchor uh, so that we could listen to Rishi Sudak's conference speech <laughs> while, while sort of jumping off. Every, you know, every time he mentioned HS2, I jumped off the boat and had a quick swim. Um, it was really very fun. So yes, hello, I'm on holiday. But here we are, discussing politics as always. Uh, and you, you'll have heard there from Anita Botang, who joins us on the podcast this week. Hello, Anita. Hello. Hello, hello. A government affairs, policy and communications specialist. You worked with three cabinet ministers as a, as a SPAD, Anita. Who were they? When was it? What were you up to? Um, what I was up to was obviously, you know, the most important job in politics, which is being a special advisor, which we love here on Whitehall Sources. Um, I worked for Stephen Crabb, I worked for Brandon Lewis, and I worked for David Liddington. So my last job was in 2019, you remember that year? Mm. Um, he was de facto Deputy Prime Minister for Theresa May. We were embroiled in Brexit, along with Kirsty, actually. Um, I still have the scars. Um, <laughs> Not from me, I hasten to. Oh, definitely. She is quite the Rottweiler in government. Now reformed. I've been quite enjoying um, David Liddington's uh, contributions to Laura Koonsberg's documentary at the moment, which has been looking back at the last Mm. few years of absolute chaos, including, yes, the aforementioned scarring Brexit years. Yes. Um, So, yes, very much a tumultuous time in government, which is obviously to be expected. And now I advise a, a big uh, communications and, and policy agency and talk to businesses about how to navigate what's happening in the world of politics. So I was at conference rather than in cause. <laughs> yeah, quite right. Okay, well, let's start there then. How was it? What did it feel like to you over the few days of, of um, Conservative Party conference? And let's not forget, it was in Manchester where Rishi Sudak decided to can a bit of HS2 that was going to go to Manchester. But but first of all, just a kind of zoomed out feel from you, Anita, on what it was actually like at conference. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is I'm incredibly young, but I happen to have been to a lot of party conferences. <laughs> um, and it was much like any other party conference, which is that there were a good smattering of MPs, not as many come as you might imagine. There were all the usual political special advisors, movers and shakers. There was a lot of policy discussion about HS2, about Rishi, about the upcoming election. And there was a lot of very interesting fringes, some helpful, some not to the Prime Minister. And generally, I was surprised by the amount of energy, actually. Um, But I always think that with these things, depending on your perspective, you will walk out going, oh, gosh, the last march of the dying. Or if you're a true believer, you'll come out thinking, gosh, um, you know, 10 more years. Uh, So a classic conference. Yeah, well, that's fair. It's Kirsty, from a distance, what do you think of that? Because it felt like, as Anita says, there were kind of two narratives. And one of them was around, you know, is this the last Conservative Party conference before an election defeat? And is that tinging the tone? Another bit of it was about HS2 and whether Number 10 and Rishi Sunak had kind of lost control of conference in some way because it was being so heavily dominated by speculation around his plans for HS2. So from a distance, Kirsty, what was your take on what was what conference was like? Uh, resisting the temptation to burst out into the song from a distance. Um, yeah, just to clarify for people listening, 
listening. The reason I wasn't there, obviously, is because I'm going through chemo and conference is a massive bag of germs uh, from which nobody, no matter how much vitamin D they take, escapes uh, unscathed. But I think it is useful because it gives, obviously, you know, the perspective that Anita had being there and the perspective that I had, you know, watching it from a distance, uh, albeit watching it with a with the eye of a, of a massive geek. So I've probably watched a good deal more of it than any normal, sane and rational human being would have done. Um, and I think there's always two things to, to think about with a conference. What is the froth of the conference, where a lot of media within the secure zone get very excited about things that you know, hit for one news cycle and then disappear and don't really matter in the cosmic scheme of things. And 99.9% of people who aren't political geeks probably won't even notice. And what is the kind of lasting impression from conference to the outside world? I do think this conference was interestingly uh, much more focused internally than it should have been for a conference a year out from a general election. But, you know, it's all that froth around, you know, Mark Harper's weirdness around sinister towns and, you know, uh, unfortunate pot shots at Labour's non-existent meat tax policy and all that kind of stuff. That's all froth from conference. That's good, you know, good copy, good headlines um, and a good crack for journalists, but it doesn't really matter. The two probably last impressions from this conference is one obviously the decision uh, the long awaited worst kept secret in Whitehall uh, decision to axe that second leg of HS2 from Birmingham to Manchester of which we'll obviously talk about quite a lot and the other is just this kind of sense that um, the Conservatives are very much shifted to the populist right, all that kind of Farage being mobbed and Liz Truss rally about taxation and laying down demands of Jeremy Hunt before the autumn statement. And, you know, and those things matter from the context of, you know, uh, where we are in terms of the direction of the Tory party, because actually that also gives off the impression that for a big rump of the party, They've already decided that the election is lost and they're battling, you know, right under the nose of the current prime minister for who becomes the next leader of the Conservative Party and what direction of travel the Conservative Party goes in from then. So you saw a lot of positioning from Suella Braverman, a lot of sort of claiming from the Conservative Democratic organisation about the sort of party they want to see. Once in their eyes, the inevitable happens, they lose the election and then there's a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. Mm. So, I mean, Kirsty, what I would say to that, and I think there always are these two conferences, there is the kind of what's happening with the government, what's the state of play with the government, and then there's the second narrative of like what's happening in the fringes and all the sort of showing of a bit of leg from possible leadership posturing and I think what has changed in this conference is because of the fact that 20 points behind in the polls we can argue now it's 15 there is a lot more credence put to the kind of leg um, that some of these potential candidates or political posturing that's happening because Kirsty you and I will remember the kind of day two would be a wipeout of the Boris Johnson show every time he decided to come to conference, right? So there's always been this element. And the other thing that always happens at conferences is everyone gets very excited about, oh gosh, someone queued for two hours to see Liz Truss. And that doesn't really tell you that, that those people completely agree with Liz Truss. They're just fascinated. The most interesting kind of unexpected, unpredictable elements of conference do get a lot of attention. I don't think that necessarily means that that's where 
the party wishes it was, or certainly that everyone in that room agrees with what, for instance, Liz Truss might be saying about X, Y or Z. No, and that's true. And there was a massive, massive queue uh, for people to get their books signed by Theresa May. Yeah, um, you know, so th- it is a conference of of just about still a broad church. Uh, but I think the impression it gives from the outside and to casual viewers, if you like, and I sort of pretend here that I'm a casual viewer <laughs> of what went on at conference, is this idea that actually the the populist right rump of the Conservative Party are very much in the ascendancy. They're the ones that were bringing the energy. They're the ones that think, right, you know, this is game on. Um, And actually, that's kind of uh, one of the sort of lasting impressions of it. And and you combine that, I think, with uh, Suella's speech, which was, uh, again, an interestingly weird conflation of arguments about you know mass migration and illegal immigrants and 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 straw men of people who apparently are arguing for open borders who are these people i've i've yet to meet them um you know and so there was all that kind of conflation and the language of a hurricane coming you know which actually it just put me in mind again of that uh, we go full circle back to when theresa may was chairwoman of the Conservative Party and said that the party was just giving off the impression to voters of of being um, the nasty party. And that stuck for a very long time before David Cameron came along and hugged hoodies and painted the Conservative tree green and detoxified the party. And that feels like where it's going at the moment. Um, And... Uh, I mean, we can come to Rishi reset in a minute, I suppose, but but actually none of that for me was offset by... I mean, we've obviously got, you know, this reset Rishi and we all know he's a fiscal conservative and, you know, God, I don't want to go through the old tedious sequential arguments about, you know, what speeds growth is it squeezing out inflation or cutting taxes first, yada, yada, yada. But uh, I still don't know where he is in terms of social issues and values from that point of view. And so actually you've got, you know, I mean... Outside of a conference by, you know, trans people, I doubt the word trans will have been mentioned, you know, anywhere else more than it was mentioned here. There were seven different, I think, you know, policies aimed at, uh, you know, aimed against the sort of, you know, or aimed for, let's try and put it that way, the common sense approach to trans activism. Um, and, you know, so this kind of cultural wedge stuff. Uh, which will leave some people, quite a lot of people, you know, particularly One Nation Conservatives, feeling uh, increasingly like this isn't a party that, you know, represents their values. And it's an interesting, and again, we can talk again about HS2 and what that does to votes in the North, but at the same time, there's lots of people who vote in the South who are floating voters who will have looked at some of that language and looked at some of that yas queening of Liz Truss and feel very uncomfortable about the potential future direction of the Conservative Party. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to wave my flag for a second and, you know, mention that it is the north of England and the south of England that uh, is is referred to when we're discussing HS2. Um, I realise that other parts of the country have their own governments, and I, of course, am meaning Scotland, but I just, I think it's an important note that stop, high-speed rail is welcome Stop plugging Hollywood sources while you're on Whitehoot. It's popular enough. Back, back off. <laughs> Uh, the other place. The other place, exactly. Um, right, let's let's fold in some of what you were talking about there, Kirsty. Then, because under this banner of of Rishi Sunak, the change candidate, um, I mean, ha- 
is this going to work? I think is the crucial question emerging from conference because with HS2, with decisions on education um, and the sort of scrapping or you know the, the, the evolution of education in England and A-levels and, all of, and you know, hyping up apprenticeships and all these sorts of things, Rishi Sunak is very much uh, trying to reboot, to reinvent and say, look, despite the fact that Conservatives have been in power for 13 years, despite the fact that I, Rishi Sunak, have been a Conservative MP for a decent length of time, actually we've identified the things that are wrong about you know various aspects of the country, of society, and I am the person to set us right, to, to take us onwards from here. And so basically it's about, he will take decisions that are right for the country and how to deliver them, and he will make the changes, and the Labour Party doesn't have clear views about anything, no abilities to decide anything. Anita, how easy or difficult a sell is that for Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, as a Conservative MP, as a member of government for several years, and with not that long until a general election? Um, I think that's slightly the wrong question in the sense of easy, ease of sale, right? I mean, Callum, you ask him many amazing I do not accept <laughs> the premise of that question. <laughs> that was a very See, you sounds, <laughs> it sounds like you're about to run away from what may actually be the crucial question. No, no, no. I think my point is that yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's easy or not. It's what he absolutely has to do, right? I'm always reminded of um, Danny Finkelstein, who's a kind of big uh, conservative political thinker who talks about the kinds of elections you can run, right? You can run time for a change. You can run, we're on track, don't look back. And if you can't do those two, you do better the devil you know. Mm. And Rishi has to get to a point where he just has to argue that he can provide change. Um, he has to run as change and his change is I make tough long-term decisions which I think does kind of suit his brand is very authentic to who he is and I think his hope is that the more I take big swings and try to present change the more in contrast to Labour who are running quite a cautious campaign and are effectively relying on the fact that it's a blue rosette rather than a blue tree on the ballot paper that's going to make people think that they're offering change um, and I'm almost reminded I don't know if you remember you must remember this you're both real political nerds um, the 2015 Green Party um Party political broadcast where they had all these people wearing the same um, all these kind of four politicians doing a song Yes, we totally remember that. You don't remember this? No. Um, How dare you show off my singing with your brilliant voice? (laughs) (laughs) But it was this like it was this party political broadcast when they had like a mock Ed Miliband, mock Farage, yes, it was like a boy band, and it was a boy band thing, Mm. and it does feel a bit like. Keir Starmer is running like I'm as close as you can imagine to being a conservative except I happen to be Labour and so that does give Rishi Sunak room to just go for it there isn't a lot that he has to lose by seeking differentiation he's now got to a position where even the most ardent critics I did um, uh, BBC with um, Jacob Rees-Mogg Politics Live during conference and even he as much as he's supporting this all these policies around no you know no tax rises is saying Rishi Sunak is the man for the job he is not under threat in terms of his leadership so he can just go for it and the party is just looking for a direction and the more you take the party in a direction the less other people feel like they could start advocating 
posing for whatever they want and it gets slightly crowded out and everyone just sort of heaves together in the coming up to an election or certainly that's what Rishi and certainly what number 10 hopes so maybe the public goes hmm you know Nick Robinson asked Rishi this morning have you heard of the Yorkshire phrase brass neck in, in arguing that you're the trade t- change candidate but Rishi Sunak has to and he has to go for broke with it Kirsty. Mm. Much as I uh, am loath to do this because uh, Anita is a dear friend of mine and I, <laughs> I don't wish for us to fall out on this podcast, but I profoundly disagree from a, from a, from a comms point of view. I mean, look, let's, uh, there, there are good bits and bad bits to the Rishi reset. I think, uh, I think I said last week that obviously that whole inaction man jibe from Keir Starmer had, had clearly stung. And I think what we've seen in terms of interviews and delivery and uh, some of the policy stuff, we'll talk about that in a, in, in a bit, um, is a man who is, you know, who is, I think, successfully buried the idea that he's just this sort of dull accountant, managerial, technocrat guy that's sort of labouring in the background, is good at details, but not much of a leader. We've seen a much more punchy Rishi Thunak, much more prepared to say, look, you know, I take these decisions because I think they're right for the country. You know, they're what the people and the public back, and I know what their priorities are. And if you disagree with me, kind of bring it on. I thought that was all very successful stuff. Um, I'm, you know, I think if we're talking about brass neck or chutzpah or whatever you want to say, you know, leaving aside the chutzpah of cancelling a big economic project in Manchester in Manchester, um, uh, I think it is only... It is only topped by trying to present Rishi as the change candidate. I would be very nervous by putting Rishi Sunak next to the word change and wondering psychologically what that does in the minds of voters. Yes, please. Thank you very much. You know, not you. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it's like he wasn't, hasn't been part of this government, hasn't been the chancellor, etc. I mean, I think if I was going to pick one of Danny Finkelstein's kind of three broad themes, although obviously, you know, we're on track is clearly not the right words to use, but I think it's, you know, I would have gone with a version of, you know, I can be trusted to deliver for the country. You know, this is a guy who, you know, took Britain from one side of the raging torrent, if you like, of COVID and secured and safeguarded all those jobs and all the businesses and carried the country's economy over to the other side with an incredible package uh, of support. This was a guy that finally, you know, fought through the inconsistencies of Boris Johnson's uh, Brexit bounce deal and secured the Windsor framework. You know, this is a guy that has, you know, recalibrated our relationship with Europe and got us back into the Horizon Project, which is hugely beneficial for for this country. I think, you know, and this is a guy who can start to point out, I said inflation would come down and it halved and we're getting there and, you know, we're 20% down on the boats and yada, yada, yada. You know, I think there's a more solid ground. It's not perfect. I'm, you know, at this stage of the game for the Conservatives, no messaging is going to be perfect. But this kind of, you know, I can get to grips with the really difficult 
problems this country faces and I can be trusted to deliver on those, uh, A, plays into that kind of technocrat authenticity of him and B, is a slightly kind of like, don't let this lot wreck it over here. I just think change for me, I'm not, I'm not buying it. And like I say, you put his face next to the word change and I know what every vote is going to go, you know, a lot of voters are going to go, yeah, thanks very much. I'm voting for this lot over here. So, so... Where I agree with you is that he definitely has to be authentic to himself. But I think the question really is what is working and what hasn't worked. And I don't see that him being able to, or he has currently and for the past year been going, look, I delivered furlough. You quite liked me back then. He has been going, look, we delivered Windsor. We delivered um, Horizon. And it hasn't energized or certainly caused the public to kind of look at him again and I think it's just a question of packaging here that's what we're talking about it's it's does he present that as we're on track don't look back or I'm or let me finish the job or let me I've delivered stuff so far I can deliver again or does he present it as by the way I'm my own man and I've got to say the conservatives have an impressive track record over the 20th um, and now 21st century of renewal in office of being able to present themselves as different people yes Labour Party and everyone who follows politics talks about 13 years but most of the public don't actually think David Cameron is that similar to Liv's trust and so we have managed to find moments of saying well look this is a renewed or this is a different conservative government and I think that it, given Rishi Sunak's ratings are much higher than the conservatives his best bet is to lean into that and say I I'm different. And I think that actually, in a way, he hasn't gone far enough in the policies that deliver and create that impression of change. And also, honestly, in criticizing leaders that have gone before him as a way to kind of cut through and make the point about differentiation. But I agree with you, Kirsty, like that would be a better way to play it. I just don't think that has worked so far. And so I think he has to push it further. And as we know, when you're making a lot of noise, that's when the public start to hear something. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations. Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm 
that the resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. That's an interesting thought. When, when you start making a lot of noise is when something actually cuts through. I'm quite taken as well by, by the mention of furlough from kind of both of you there because th- there is something of a public appeal in his track record. Is, is he at risk of that blowing up? And I'm going to add into this the response from people like David Cameron and like Boris Johnson to the scrapping of the Birmingham-Manchester HS2 leg and George Osborne indeed in the last 24 hours since the announcement. They've both kind of all said to paraphrase, you know, this is a shame, this was supposed to be a long-term thing, Um, you know, this is the wrong decision, basically. And I'm just wondering if he's blowing up that that reputation that may have been cemented during COVID. I love love your undersell summary of this is a shame. (laughs) Such a shame you have broken 15 years of of, cross-cut party consensus and this major infrastructure project that three former prime ministers have said is exactly what it needs to energise the economy of the North. Um, Look, I think if you're building on this brand of, you know, I am a different sort of person because people are fed up of broken politics, they're fed up of empty promises, they're fed up of short-termism and being, you know, oversold and under-delivered, I think, again, that is quite a, to put it mildly, punchy thing to, to argue off the back of ripping up uh, a, you know, a 15-year-in-the-making infrastructure project. Now, I mean, look, I can remember back in 1808 when I was uh, the political editor of the esteemed Sunday Express and I was at a, uh, another Conservative conference and having a meeting with the delightfully enthusiastic, as was then uh, Transport Secretary Patrick McLaughlin, um, and we were talking about high speed too. And Patrick McLaughlin is now, I think, the chairman for transport for the North. And Sunday Express, a little known fact about the Sunday Express, it sells, you know, it, in terms of its sales, the vast bulk of its sales are in the northwest of England. Right? And I came back from that conference and argued to the editor that unlike all the other newspapers, which were vehemently opposed to uh, high speed two, we should support it. And not because of, and, and by the way, the issue about, you know, calling it high speed and presenting it as speed was always a kind of misnomer for this project. It's about capacity and it's about economic regeneration. And off the back of all the economic regeneration and the investment that I could already see coming into Manchester because of that planned programme of this major rail infrastructure project, I said to the editor, we should support this. You know, I know it makes us outliers, but we should support it. Mm. And so it is about, uh, you know, dare I say it, it's about levelling up um, the economies and it was about bringing investment to the north. So actually when you're talking about you know and this has got all the kind of hallmarks of focus grouping to me 
This is policy by focus grouping. They sat and listened to loads and loads of people in the north in focus groups who've said, and they're wasting billions of pounds on this high speed two thing that, you know, is only going to get people to London quicker and it's costing billions and it's massively over time and over budget. And meanwhile, my station, you know, needs an upgrade and it's been promised for 30 years and, 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 right? And I think this is a lot of what has gone on here um, is they've thought, right, we'll take this money, uh, we'll put it into, you know, in infrastructure investment projects in rail you know and roads uh, in the north and the midlands and the south uh, quite a lot of this new network north project has got nothing to do with the north at all by the way but that's mm. that, that's an aside and actually that's that's what has been the motivating factor for it they thought and think it will be popular with people in the north however the secondary point to that, and this is what we're seeing, and if you look at the front pages of the national newspapers today, they're all like, hail the conquering hero. Number 10 will be delighted with the front pages they've got off the back of his speech. They're fantastic. They're mostly positive, except for the ones you'd expect not to be. Look at the regional newspapers in the north, mm. would be what I say. And actually, you know, what you're getting is some beautiful analysis of the broken promises you know, year after year after year of some of these projects that Rishi Sunak is now saying, oh, yeah, you can trust us to deliver on the upgrade of Bradford or, you know, the Leeds tram, tram network, etc. Chronicle Live has got this amazing, if you've got time to look at it, 30-year timeline of the promises by successive governments, including Conservative governments, to duel the A1, right? And so actually, you've taken a project because focus group people say, waste of money over time, does nothing for me, and you've replaced it by promising a load of things that all these people in all these communities have been promised for years and years and years by politicians, and the general reaction from the North is, yeah, 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 we'll believe it when we we see it and so actually Labour's uh, big prize here is to turn this not just as a story about the insult to Manchester and the cost to Manchester but a wider betrayal of the North it's an absolute gift for Labour I think and that's a really interesting point at which to turn then to the context for Labour Party conference, which gets underway um, this weekend. Just to build on that, Anita, what, what, first of all, we should note that this is unusual that the Conservative Party conference has come before the Labour Party conference. That's just an observation. Uh, but second of all, and with that in mind, what does this do for the Labour Party as it now gears up to deliver, in some ways, its response, I suppose, to what has just happened and what has gone before? Yeah, and it's always easier being in government than being in opposition, even going first, which is because of some weird quirk to do with the fact that basically Labour, um, Liverpool, <laughs> um, had another booking for party conference. So yes. uh, took the Tories, kindly agreed to switch. Um, so I think it does a lot for Labour because we all know that the big battle in Labour as they run up to um, the election has been sort of hope versus reassurance and it's how much do we offer hope, how much do we make people believe that we are you're gearing up for some gin oh, ginormous, <laughs> ginormous and dramatic there, uh, change and how much do we help people to understand that in actual fact we are just very safe and we can be trusted to steward the economy and to make sound decisions and in a way Keir Starmer was very much flattered for instance by Boris Johnson and the fact that he was someone who took big swings and Keir in sort of being a slightly steady Eddie um, could could 
create a sense of contrast. Now, I think that this does actually present a challenge for Labour. Look at their response to net zero, for instance. I mean, the the quote, the tweet that, that Keir Starmer produced after Rishi Sunak's big and I would argue quite defining speech was just sort of garbled, never heard of it, no idea what it means statement. Um, I'm not sure um, anyone listening, you know, go and uh, go and look it up. It's like, I will make the right kinds of decisions that, that the public like. And it was like, you don't know what to do um, when and Rishi Sunak's in this mode. And I think we've seen a similar thing with HS2. They can absolutely go, well, actually, you know, you're not doing the right thing. And then you go, okay, so would you reverse it? What would you do? And we go, hmm, well, we'll have to see the numbers. And there is something about this caution, the kind of ming vase strategy um, of kind of, you've got this sort of very delicate um, vase that is your majority, that you're safely trying to transport across the room, um, that becomes a bit more of a shock around your neck mm. if you're being presented with someone who is very much going for this change um, dynamic. So I think that Labour's always going to struggle as the opposition to get out of reactive mode. And one of the things that cuts through and comes through a lot in the focus group, certainly we do, um, I do as part of my, my day job, is this idea that with Keir Starmer, there is an element of not just a kind of evasiveness but a sort of well what would you do instead you know you're just there sort of Mr. Critique with your finger out you know you seem like a supply teacher anyway um, and you're not able to define your own platform and what I think Labour really wants to do in this conference that's coming up is to sort of say you've got to define your own platform um, I, I heard that they have been told they have to keep the sort of Tory bashing to sort of no more than a couple of hundred words and really focus on what they would do now in like the fact that Rachel Reed was saying well you can spend no money but anything else goes how successful is that actually going to be in capturing and creating new conversations in the way that Rishi Sunak like the policies or dislike them they are definitely things that are going to continue to be important parts of political discourse mm. I think um I think what the number 10 are trying to do is obviously lay a tax and spend trap for Labour. They'll spend quite a lot of time at conference, you know, facing and fielding questions from journalists going, what would you do about high speed too? Will you bring it back? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a very simple answer for that. And actually it's provided by Conservative uh, Metro Mayor Andy Street uh, to get them through conference. They simply need to say, well, you know, um, uh, we think investment uh, in some of these projects in the north is is absolutely vital, but we also think high speed two is vital for levelling up the north. Therefore, we'll be talking cross party and to private sector to see what we can do to, to ensure that this, you know, project uh, get, you know goes ahead, and we'll be you know reporting back on the findings of that. You know, sound of can kicking down road. Uh, I think some of that's fine. I think there's a. I think Anita's 100% right. The public absolutely are not sold on Keir Starmer at all. And if you look at the polls between Tories versus Labour, where there's obviously this kind of, by and large, a 20-point lead for Labour that hasn't really shifted in over a year, the polls between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are much are much more narrow. And so I think there's a... I think Downing Street were right to focus on resetting Rishi and putting him kind of front and centre of it because there's a much closer battle around the leadership there. One thing I did think about Rishi, which I do think is an opportunity for 
care is whilst obviously he talked about his background, which I thought was very good and very compelling, and we saw a much more human side with being introduced by his wife and what have you. I'm not sure that three big policy announcements around high speed two and a smoking ban and you know a shake up of A levels in some sort of unspecified time in the future amounts to what I would call the vision thing. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a long time for Labour. I think we will see some, a little bit more boldness. I think, you know, I wouldn't over, you know, I wouldn't, if you've got a Mingvile strategy, I would say by and large stick with it because if you run too fast, you're going to, you know. So it's all risk and no reward, if you like, to, to show too much ankle, I think, before you need to. So that's fine. But one thing that Keir Starmer can do is present a vision of the sort of Britain he and a Labour Party want and promise to build. And that was missing. I think for me from uh, Rishi Sunak's speech I still don't understand I understand what Rishi is all about now he's a man's prepared to take you know big bold action long term decisions <laughs> do what's right and if you don't like it let's have a fight about it that's well, all fine <laughs> just but want to I, jump in because Kirsty's sort of moving as though she's some sort of geezer as she's saying yeah. that there that you wouldn't want to square off with the street <laughs> just, just for added visual context listeners sorry Kirsty. go on yeah, so, so I get all that but what I still don't understand is you know, is what does you know what does future Britain you know under Sunak and under five more years of Conservative rule, you know, mean for people when they vote for it? Where is the vision thing? And I think for Starmer, he doesn't need to go. Here's our policy. I'll see your policy and raise you that policy. He needs to say, under Labour, this is the sort of Britain we want to build. We promise we will build. And I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and it's difficult to see a thread unless you really watch politics closely, as let's all confess and put our hands together and admit that we do, that between those three policies, we know that sort of says I make tough long-term decisions. But to most voters, A-levels, HS2 and smoking do not have a through line. There's no thread. But, but I also think that with Keir, there is a challenge that when you start to say, well, here's my vision, it feels a bit motherhood and apple pie unless you have a diagnosis for what has gone wrong in the country and why we are where we are. And at the moment, Keir's diagnosis seems to be, you guys are not very competent, I would be more competent. Now, we know the reality, I'm talking, pointing at Kirsty right now for listeners, that actually governing is really, really hard and you, you, you can get yourself into really tricky situations, not through lack of intelligence or integrity or making decisions when you needed to. Um, and so I just think that's not a compelling enough diagnosis. And I think if we look back to the Cameron era and, or, or even to the Blair era, both of them had an understanding and a prognosis for the country. You know, you had Blair kind of saying, well, look, the Thatcherite reforms have worked, they've delivered a degree of growth and we need to reinvest that in public services. And you had David Cameron saying, well, look, the, like, the social conservatism needs to slightly die a death. We absolutely can make a story about protection of public services, but in this new economic climate, we need to make it, be making a different argument. And they had a prognosis and, an, and a vision and a diagnosis for what had gone wrong and what to do differently. And I think Kira's always struggled to be able to pin down beyond the fact that like we've had too many prime ministers and things have happened that nobody in the country likes um, that needs to underpin a vision so that it doesn't feel a bit like I want to live in a country where everything is amazing and nothing bad happens and Labour's going to get you there. And they're frankly isn't enough trust in politicians for that to be sufficient to create a compelling vision. Well, I mean, I think if 
the sort of strap line, if you think, of 1997 when New Labour swept to power was things can only get better. I think the unofficial strap line for 2024 for Labour is, frankly, they can't get any worse. Um, I think this is very much uh, an election where Labour, by and large, can be content to say, uh, you know, we're not them. You know, I think their prescription for what is wrong with the country is... 13 and by then 14 years of conservative rule, which has left you with the highest taxes, which has left you with crumbling public services, literally crumbling schools and hospitals. Uh, you know, they haven't delivered on the promises of Brexit. It's years of betrayal of the North, broken promises from a rich and elite conservative party that are more prepared to, you know, line the pockets of their crony mates than they are to fight for the rights of ordinary working people. It's a, you know, I mean, it will work and play well in in the North. I think, obviously, there's a much more complicated uh, argument to be had in some of the uh, seats in the South. Um, but, I, you know, you, uh, you know, I think you need a bit of a of a vision thing. But broadly, it's off the back of the fact we're not them. You know, look what they have done to your country. They promise low taxes. You have the highest tax burden in, you know, in post-war history. You know, they promised you, repeatedly promised you, you know, economic regeneration in the North, you know, the health disparities, the education disparities, now the great rail infrastructure betrayal, all of that sort of stuff. So pretty compelling, you know, and look, I get negative, you know, uh, politicking isn't a great turn on for people, but if you combine that with a vision of, you know, this is what we will do, this is our values, you know, we will put aspiration, the needs of working people back at the heart of everything we do. It's pretty much, you know, frankly, all you need. Oh, and don't get me wrong. I think that this is a nice problem to have, right? But if you can just sort of point at the other lot, then actually that gives you a lot of freedom. And I'm not pretending that this this sort of lack of a diagnosis for where the country has gone wrong is going to stop Labour from um, being certainly being on track for um, winning the general election. I just think it makes governing harder. And I think it makes it harder for you to figure out what to prioritise. Um, and I think that it makes... It makes the country worse, right? If you if you win off the back of like, I'm just not that lot. Yeah, Nita, I have a question for you. <laughs> Do you think the election is still all to play for? I don't think it's all to play for. I think that it's it. You people overthink and overcomplicate these things, right? You're trying too hard to be interesting if you're trying to say that you know, or, you know, it's all kind of anything could happen. Who knows? I mean, I think the Labour Party are very convincingly on track for an election victory. I do therefore think that the Conservatives don't have a lot to lose by by doing exactly what they think is the right thing and by trying to recapture public attention which has broadly um, drifted um, in the in the chaos and all the uncertainty and all the changes over the past couple of years so I think that there are very smart people in the Conservative government and in Number 10 who can see that as the polls narrow and the way in which I think voters are less party pre, they're less sort of like, I'm Labour, I'm Tory, I will never ever change, that there is enough there for them to have the fight that they have right now. 
Lovely stuff. Uh, thank you both very much indeed. That's a good question. Would you like to have your say? Have it. Drop us an email. Is the election still all to play for? Uh, email us hello at whitehallsources.com. Of course, on this podcast next week, we will do the post-match analysis on Labour Party conference. As part of that, you will hear from friend of the podcast, Alice Perry. She was a Labour councillor for 11 years. She was on Labour's National Executive Committee for eight years, including one as chair. She actually drafted three general election manifestos for the party as well. So her conference memories, her conference analysis coming up right now, here's her conference preview for you. The Labour Party hoped to use the 2024 conference in Liverpool as a platform to speak to the country. Labour wants to be able to uh, reassure voters that it's safe to vote Labour again, that the party can represent the change that they feel the country needs. Um, Keir is going to be using conference as well to introduce his new team and new shadow cabinet ahead of the election, make some key announcements and speeches they hope will resonate with voters. And like also give prospective parliamentary candidates who've been selected um, the opportunity to speak from the platform about um, local issues that matter to their constituencies, like you know get pick up in local media and so on. Uh, expects, um, well, it's going to be massive, isn't it? There's 16,000 people attending, including th- thousands of businesses and commercial visitors. And like many people attending Labour Party conference, either for the first time or the first time in many years. Someone was joking that there are going to be um, so many CEOs, it's going to be like Davos in Liverpool. And um, it really speaks to how important business engagement is for Labour. That... Um, As we count down to the general election, the business engagement, reassuring the public and businesses that Labour um, can be trusted with their votes and trusted on the economy, trusted to deliver investment and growth for the UK. And, you know, fundraising is going to be a key part of it as well. And conference, even in the Corbyn years, generated a lot of income and revenue. So um, it's going to be big. It's going to be exciting, possibly a little bit chaotic, but it's also kind of represents a new phase as we count down towards the next general election. And I'm really looking forward to it. So join us next week for more from Alice Perry. Make sure you follow and subscribe for that. We'll be dropping into your feed next week to, to see what Sir Keir Starmer makes of it all um, in a few days' time uh, over the course of Labour Party Conference. I'll actually be back in the UK as well, which will be very, very nice. I won't have to listen on a boat next week, which is good. Uh, Anita, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And Kirsty, thank you very much. Uh, we will speak to you again very soon on Whitehall Sources. Thank you for being there. And we'll have a listen out, have a look out for our Labour Party Conference episode, which will be with you next week. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.